Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the nitty-gritty realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss the content of our weekly wrap-up post, which is entitled Another Week Ends. This week's Another Week Ends is written and put together by none other than the man himself, the founder and director of Mockingbird, David Zoll. Once again, it's that time of the week where I virtually connect with David Zoll. We're two states away from each other and yet in one state of mind, looking at another week ends. David, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I feel like it's been a remarkably good week, which is normally not something I'd say in January, but... um... Despite the sad, uh, you know, the one-two blow of losing David Bowie and Alan Rickman in a week. I think today someone told me that J.I. Packer announced that he's blind, something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I saw that, that he's he's got, uh, yeah, I molecular, um, I forget what the proper term for it is, yeah, but his but sight. In the, midst of, in the midst of all that, I've had a, just a, a great week. Partly it's, you know... As sad as the Bowie thing is, I've sort of jumped into his discography and some of my favorite stuff, and that's been um, really edifying. And uh, just to go through this, such a rich catalog and kind of, you know, we, we talk so much about a low anthropology to really see what David Bowie did and accomplished in his life. Um, to me, it's sort of the opposite of that. It's almost like uh, it's encouraging about uh, the human race, which at the outset of 2016, maybe we need. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things about anthropology is I think about this, and I guess for the uninitiated, we mean kind of like we're not Jane Goodall things, but like looking at, I don't know, Aboriginal groups or something, but uh, like how we estimate human being. And I think there's a sense in which you can have this, on one level, view of the world that's, uh, you know, creation run amok uh, and be a realistic, but yet also be open to Christ playing in a thousand places. So there's, a, there's kind of these high moments of anthropology that are graced moments uh, as opposed to a kind of uh, high anthropology that is based on self-righteousness or addiction to the law as opposed to like a, an awe-filled anthropology at how grace can sort of play us like a flute. Yeah. And in any time and in any place. And so it's unexpected. Um, you know, I, I don't know people get worried about pantheism, but it's there when you get hit in your blind spot by some, uh, accomplishment or some just picture of beauty that you get to see that has worked through a human being. I mean, those are 
Woody Allen in uh, Manhattan at the end, he always sort of talks about that's the, what makes life worth living. And that is not what makes life worth living. Um, but it is not, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> it's kind of, it's nice, right? Yeah. When you really see, you know, it's like when the veil, the, you know, the curtains get pulled back and you sort of, it's like these transfiguration like moments where human beings animated by love and freedom actually are icons of uh, their creator. Yeah, I, I got interviewed about Bowie on uh, the on some place based on the thing we posted from the from Mess of Help, and uh, it was very. It was I thought it was a nice interview, um, but it sort of started out. It was a Christian radio station in Detroit, and really good guy as a host. I had never met him before, but they just responded to the blog post. And clearly there was a lot of hand-wringing about um, the possibility that David Bowie might be in heaven. And um, I thought to myself, what, why, would, why would there be hand-wringing about that? It, it, wouldn't we hope that that would be the case and at least look for signs of um, some kind of uh, comforting uh, outlook in his music, especially towards the later years? Uh I mean, I understand, I kind of get where he's coming from is, uh, cause we, we occasionally get these comments on Mockingbird where people, uh, they roll their eyes a little bit, uh, and probably with good reason. Oh, are you really going to find the gospel and this and that, you know, or, uh, you're, you're going to refuse to see anything good in Thomas Kincaid, but you're going to like look at Bowie and <laughs> Bowie is sort of like the, the paragon of seventies decadence. Um, uh, or self-indulgence and you're going to talk about the gospel there. And I, I understand that, but I also think it's, um, you know, I, I think there probably is some good stuff about Thomas Kincaid's paintings, by the way. And I don't want to wade into that really, but the Bowie thing, um, you know, he's just a human being like anyone else. So he, he's going to deal with the larger questions at some point. And he actually did them quite publicly. And I found it to be very compelling the fact that we would have to uh, proclaim him off limits for being popular or something he did in his past. It's just strikes me deeply unchristian. Yeah. I remember once with a group of sort of socialites on the Philadelphia main line after a talk, mm -hmm. it was a talk at a church and we were having cocktails afterwards. And somebody said something about hearing the Dalai Lama and they said, you know, come on, could the Dalai Lama really not be in heaven? It was interesting. I said, you know, that sounds gracious, but really what you're saying is just like, well, good little boys and good little girls go to heaven and we consider him a good one. I was like, it would be really interesting to say, can you imagine if God couldn't forgive Charles Manson? You know, that's, a, that's why I actually said that. And everybody looked at me like I had a third eye. But I think, uh, I think it's mere slug. Like, what, what if Mel Gibson is in heaven? You know? Exactly. Exactly. What if something uh, like that? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's Miroslav Volf who I first heard say, I'm not a universalist, but I hope God is. Yeah, like a hopeful, you, you want that to be true. You, you can't, it doesn't really square with scripture, you know, necessarily, but it, I just, the, the, the stance of the heart, it's the, posi the position of the, of the heart is, is it sort of, it's like a gleeful, oh, I'm so glad that these people who don't believe what I believe are, are suffering. Um, or would you hope that, um, the grace of God might be larger than you can imagine? And I understand why, I, again, I understand why that makes some people uneasy and it can be used to justify things just like anything can be used to justify things. But, um, 
Yeah, that's that's what that's how Capen, that's how Robert Capen always talked about universalism. People would always accuse him of being a universalist. He said, "No, I keep, I'm not a universalist based on my reading of scripture. There's just too much talk of hell." However, uh I uh hope and I pray that um there are, you know, that heaven is empty, the hell is empty. You know, that's uh, that would be um I'm not willing to sort of tell you who's there and who's not. And I, I, I like that. You know, I'm willing to say, I don't know that God, God is gracious. And, um, but there's something about, I can't believe we've already gotten into uh, hell and damnation, Scott. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, Friday. That's what Fridays are for. Fun time Friday. Yeah. Fun times Friday. There we go. Let's talk. But it's about almost, it's almost like people, are, it's almost like people are saying, well, well, if everybody has a BMW, what does mine mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah if everyone's special then no one is scott exactly what's your favorite bowie song my favorite bowie song it it always changes you know i uh i came to bowie through his later stuff uh when i was living in europe in, in early 90s uh black tie white noise came out and um it's not a good bowie record as far as bowie records go it's pretty bad actually but it's got a song called Jump They Say on it, which I just love to this day. Maybe it conjures up that time in my life. I love that song. Um, I love, uh, I mean, I love Life on Mars and I, I love everything on Ziggy Stardust. But the stuff I kind of go back to, the album I go back to the most is Station to Station. Just because it's so um, dense and kind of impenetrable and cool sounding. Um but I really do like some of the 90s stuff that I've written about. I find it, the Pretty Things Are Going to Hell is a rock and roll song. His song, a uh, song called Slip Away is great. I, I like the song um, uh, called Baby Universal, which is off the second Tin Machine record that people hate Tin Machine. You know, they took it as a personal affront that David Bowie was in this band called Tin Machine at the early 90s, which was really just him working out his love of the Pixies. Um, and it kind of got him back into his art in a new way. But, uh, yeah, that, um, that particular song, Baby Universal, is the best thing they, that band recorded. I love the song Strangers When We Meet. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I really love David Bowie. I think last, the last playlist I put, um, I put the song, uh, Drive In Saturday, which is, you know, is there a better song than that? I don't know. That's a great, great song. Well, let's go from David Bowie to David Brooks. Mm. Yet again, in another weekend's, a little bit of a spot on the great New York Times columnist. Yeah, we can't get away from this guy. And, you know, we did try to get him to come speak in New York this year, the ongoing saga of our New York speakers. And we have quite a few great ones that are coming. Um, but this year, for whatever reason, there have been a lot of scheduling uh, issues with people. And uh, Brooks, you know, costs uh, more money than we could ever uh, justify. But uh, you know, every time I think, oh, I've, I've sort of heard what David Brooks has to say. I don't, um, I like him, but I, you know, I have a conflicted relationship with him. Then he comes out with that thing about Ted Cruz, and um, which uh, you know, people consider him to be very cons conservative politically, and here he is criticizing the conservative candidate. But um, what struck me this week was this interview he did with Comment Magazine, which I believe is a is sort of like a journal of Jewish thought. And they 
interview him about his transformation, about the evolution, about how he's become kind of this moral voice in America. And um, he really rises to the occasion and talks about it. He talks about his faith. He talks about Christianity. He talks about Judaism. It, um, what I mean, did you, did you read that interview, Scott? Yeah, I, I looked it over. I, I thought one of the things that I, I really liked about it was what he said about um, neuroscience. Oh yeah, because I I loved his book The Social Animal. I read it a few years ago, and it was really um, I, I I still go back to it. I really enjoyed it. And in there, he he talks about how science seldom creates new philosophies, but that in general it enfranchises or dethrones old ones. And he said the best college course he ever took was about the British and French Enlightenment. And yeah. his study of neuroscience kind of told him that the British Enlightenment were right and the French were wrong that you can't just remake humanity. You can, you can like evolve with traditions and things like psychology and sentiment are incredibly important. And there's recurring things about it. So I, I think he's right. Like neuroscience, he has that great quote. He says, I don't think um, neuroscience has taught us anything that George Eliot didn't already know. <laughs> it doesn't solve all the problems <laughs> no. of meaning. So I felt like I had to go back to the Soloveitchek's or, or the Niebuhr's or George Eliot or Dostoyevsky who didn't have fMRI machines, but were pretty good observers of human nature. I love that line. Oh, isn't that amazing? That's a great, I mean, it's a great sort of bon mot too. And we, in the, um, when I look back in the Mockingbird archives, um, well, I keep, I'm always looking for these posts that we can do on Monday afternoons of, from the archives, which are sort of space fillers while we get our content together for the rest of the week. But there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And, and I do notice that we did uh, do a lot of neuroscience Especially when Jonah Lehrer was coming out with something new every week, and there was there was I guess about five years ago, everything was about uh, neuroscience or social science, and this was going to teach us everything about who we are and uh, give us the meaning of life. And um, after a while, you know, you just you started to notice that every six months there was a new neuroscience finding that would support the opposite of what the one six months before that did. So it, it just it seemed like people were able to cherry pick from neuroscience and social science in the exact same way they cherry pick from everything else. So it was no more trustworthy. It doesn't mean it wasn't important or uh, didn't have some grounding, but it's no more trustworthy. And so I've, I've watched us as we don't really write about that as nearly as much as we used to. Um, and, yeah, it's, uh, it's got, it's, it, I think the neuroscience stuff, it, it does a decent job of being descriptive, but then when it tries to move to being prescriptive, yeah. it, it it rings hollow, I think, most of the time. Yeah. And one thing I'm going to write about this week, or I'd like to, there's a major article in the cover of the New York Times Magazine about happiness, about applied rationality, which is basically trying to take neuroscientific and social scientific breakthroughs and apply them in sort of a happiness um, uh, course that people can take. And it's a lot of like, you know, Silicon Valley people taking this course. It's it's really interesting because it's it's gone down that road uh, that applied rationality. I mean, even the term kind of gives you the willies, right? Is it- can you tell me where to find the information for that course so I can make sure never to sign up for it? <laughs> well, actually, I was going to I signed you up as a as a late Christmas present, Scott. It's like a don't you love it when people give you Christmas presents that are just. Um, uh, you know, passive aggressive commentaries on your character. Yeah, that that is annoying. Yeah, I think you could really use this um, this applied rationality. <laughs> well, thank you. I I appreciate that very very much. And 
One last thing to highlight as people are looking for things to read on Saturday morning as they're opening their tablets, making their coffee or their chai tea or whatever it is that they're consuming to wake up. You have a little piece in here about how, how basically doctrines and theological commitments can be idols and manifest themselves even as addictions. Yeah. When doctrine becomes idolatry. When doctrine, Donovan Riley wrote this for the Christ Hold Fast website, which um, I'm speaking at their conference in a couple weeks. But I was floored by this column. It, um, he, he talks about being a drug addict, and then sort of once he got sober, he you know, became an exercise addict. All these um, moved from sort of addiction to addiction, and then goes into – he gets his PhD, and he slowly but surely finds himself using theology to fend off uh, God. You know, right doctrine, um, you can um, have the right answer so that you never have to deal with sort of yourself or any kind of, um, uh, you know, any any kind of uh, sense that you might not be able to construct every answer on your own. So it's like a defense, using God as a defense against God, using God's words as a defense against God. And this is something you see, and we've seen, uh, and I'm sure we've been very guilty of in the, in the past, but. Um, that kind of uncharitable, uh, overly hyper, um, I wouldn't call it doctrinal because there's nothing wrong with doctrine. He goes to great lengths to say that it's more of a psychology that, um, is, lies underneath it. And that's what is so interesting that you can use, um, right, right doctrine, good doctrine as a way of actually staving off what the doctrine is describing, um, I find it to be very compelling and I find it to be very true in practice. The old Adam can use anything to justify itself, including descriptions of the difference between the old and new Adam. Is that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Frank Lake, the, the great Frank Lake, uh, the psychiatrist who died in the early eighties, but he wrote in his massive tome, clinical theology, he wrote about how, schizoid theologians and by schizoid he means what we would call it now is people that had early childhood trauma and it really split them off in themselves they generally were became they always are flirting with her, her, heresy and he thought it in, in large part it's because the time they were safest was when they were in the womb and they never made the eye thou interpersonal connections so they're always writing the Gnostics and you know abstract theologians are, are always writing a ground of being or eternal ocean because they never felt seen. The, the, the sort of one-way love, unconditional thing that we all need as kids, you know, it doesn't function for them. So they're always flirting with detached intellectualism and things like this, as opposed to sort of the. It's a great. Uh, it's a great passage from clinical theology. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think I buy that. I'm buy that. Every time, every you know, every time Scott, you you mentioned Frank Lake and. Uh, I just want to read that book, I guess, but it's so daunting. You pick that thing up and it's like a doorstop. Let me tell you, the best parts of it are the exegetical reflections. He has a section, his section on the Syrophoenician woman is the best thing I've ever read in the text. You know, the woman that comes to Jesus and wants healing for her, her daughter that's afflicted. And Jesus yeah. says, you know, wait first for the, you know, is it right to take the scraps yeah. and give it to the dogs? And, Lake has about a two-page, three-page reflection on that passage. It's better than any biblical commentator I've ever read.
Yeah, man, I'll, I'll, I, I, maybe you could just send me that excerpt. <laughs> I'll find the page numbers. Uh, and the book is so big that if you just carry it around in your backpack, it's like a core back workout. Like you just you lug it around. Like your posture gets better. You'll get washboard abs. It's right. great. And we know it's it's like uh, applying rationality to your abs. Exactly, exactly. But more fun or functional or something. So, David, one thing we also wanted to mention, uh, I wanted to highlight a piece you wrote called The God of Tidying Up Hates Me. <laughs> There's nothing like a post entitled God Hates Me. Yeah, I didn't mean to be – I wrote it and then I was like, uh, this is a little bit um, inaccessible towards the beginning, so I better give it like a a clickbaity title and then um, – yeah, so that's what I was thinking. It's I'm not sure it's that accurate, or it it didn't really even work to get people that interested in it. But it's um, I was proud of it, so I wanted people to read it. I'm interested. I'm a person. I'm people. Oh, thank you. So, you so start, yeah, the what? What do you say? The premise you start off is you're looking at a little bit of Rodney Stark stuff, and looking at secularity and emerging trends in religious practice you know, in the alleged lack thereof, right? Yeah, it's really funny that that book, um, I think it's called The Triumph of Faith or Why the World's More Religious Than Ever. It it really gets at a fundamental, um, you know, uh, conviction of something that lies behind all of what we're trying to do with Mockingbird is that everyone's religious. And he he says in that book is that you know maybe church attendance on the continent has gone down and there's lots of empty churches in you know the northeast of you know america as well but uh belief in like sincere belief in you know, leprechauns and fortune telling and telepathy have gone up i mean i think he says that half of swedish people polled claimed they believe in mental telepathy and i don't I don't get the sense that half of the population would try to be trying to be ironic about it. I think they're <laughs> they answered truthfully. So, and they like uh, half of Icelandic uh, citizens, and, and that's not that many. That's like you know, two thousand people. But they believe in the Hildu folk, which is like little trolls. Um, so, what he was trying to say is that the supernatural is just as much in play, if not more than ever before. And I, I was, I was thinking about that as I read an article about Marie Kondo's new book, her, um, the guru of, um, decluttering Marie Kondo. Do you, you guys ever do, you ever Kondo? Do you know that, you know that book, Scott? Uh, yeah, I, I know about it through your review, if through your mention of it, I haven't read it. No, I don't Kondo. I kind of, I mean, we just bought a house, so we're not condo people. We're single family home people, but, <laughs> but I'm That's funny. Uh, well, no, I don't. I mean, I, I try to stay organized, but uh, I don't do it in any kind of deliberate Zen, like Feng Shui way. Yeah. She, she sort of like goes over the top and I think it's been really freeing for a lot of people who just have tons of paper lying around, never sort of, Buy way too many clothes. Just essentially uh, American middle, upper middle class people who just have too much stuff. She 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 says things very directly and almost like a tiger momish kind of way. 
So he's like, you know, you're an idiot if you have too much of such. There's a lot of value judgments, but they're kind of soft value or they're harsh value judgments about stuff that is very, it's not that personal, you know? So people loved her book and my wife and I did it because we're pretty messy people and uh, it helped, you know, we ended up throwing out a huge amount of stuff, none of which we miss, you know, it's like how many coat hangers do you actually need? That kind of thing. You need um, one for every shirt or you pay. do. I mean, that's exactly, there's an exact number. You can actually determine that perfectly. I know. You, you, need, you need, you need 104, but, uh, what kind of hang? Yeah, there, there, it's, 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 it was latched onto and it continues to be latched onto a huge bestseller and, you know, cover of time magazine, I think, um, because of the spiritual nature or the, the promises she's making and the Heather Haverleski, who I think so highly of, she, she's basically an expert at pointing out secular religions. And if Europe has their, you know, fortune tellers and stuff, well, we have Marie Kondo and this uh, decline religion that is, um, that goes beyond what, uh, just about decluttering people make it into a lifestyle that is actually, uh, to completely integrated and, and, um, it, it's about cleaning up your outside that cleans up your inside. I mean, it's directly contradictory to Christ's, uh, ethic about, you know, the heart. But, um, you know, people love it because it, it's, uh, it is such an endorsement of personal control. Um, in almost like a, um, you know, a very zealous, maniacal way. Well, there's nothing like zealous and maniacal uh, self-help, self-ordering religion. I mean, it really, it it warms the cockles of one's heart. Yeah, well, I guess. And um, yeah, I'm not going to run with that. But he, uh, she is, she's got some good advice. You know, I'm like, like a lot of these things, there's a lot of really good things in there. Like, I think I said in the article that it's, as far as secular religions go, this one's pretty harmless. Um. But Haverleski seems to – she dials in on the irony that um, Marie Kondo has just written another book and apparently she's got like a journal coming out and another – a third book coming out eventually. So eventually she's going to be one of the things that you need to condo out of your life, you know, like her <laughs> stuff you bought. <laughs> so it's impossible. If she wrote one book that was, you know, 20 pages long and then went away for the rest of the life, then, then there'd be some kind of integrity to this system. But, um, and it's funny how, how evangelistic like Howard Stern is a big GTD guy, you know, the getting things done. So mm -hmm. anytime he has a success with it, right. He comes in like the Monday, Monday morning and just berates his staff. Like Gary, why aren't you more organized? Look at you with all these notes, you know, like Robin, I told you you need to get organized. Like he's such a zealous uh, evangelist for it, and a judgmental one. <laughs> it's amazing how how quickly the 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 turn the turn because it's something even though something that's so soft like this, it can it does become an avenue for self righteousness and and guilt. You know, really, it's not even so self righteousness so much as guilt. I mean, anyone you know who's messy who struggles with organization usually feels terribly guilty about it, you know, and, um, condoing will give you some, uh, momentary relief and it gave me some momentary relief, but of course we're back to right back to where we started. And, um, you're just running around buying hangers, buying hangers, buying hangers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, gosh, you, you collect hangers so quickly. So 
I just thought Haverlest, he's so funny about all this stuff. She, she's, she's the one, she's like, when we, everyone was talking about authenticity, she's like, well, hold the phone. What are we promising people in authenticity? And how, how have we immediately made authenticity into something that's inauthentic? Or she's the one who wrote about play and how when you mandate play, it's no longer play. She, she's got this, uh, antenna up for, um, uh, I guess, uh, subversions of, uh, cultural ideals, which quickly become, uh, they tap into some kind of secular religiosity, which I, she's a genius at it. And I find it to be very, um, very uh, entertaining, amusing, but also convicting for me personally. Well, I'd encourage everybody in addition to looking at another weekend, like maybe first read this piece because as you're waking up, you know, tomorrow morning with your coffee or whatever, and you're tempted to sort of condoize, maybe you could just like lay in bed and drink coffee read, read yeah, there's nothing worse than a Saturday that's the entire Saturday is spent organizing your house I mean now there's some things worse like waterboarding yeah there's something <laughs> worse but like, yes mean, yes you're right there are some but you're right it's it's a drag it's a, I, yeah you lose your your entire weekend's gone and you've just uh you know reorganized your uh your your kitchen shelves anyway. well, thanks man Thanks for letting me sound off, Scott. You're the best. Well, all right, David. Thanks. And, you know, there's lots of other great stuff in another weekend's this week. So as the week is ending, I'd encourage all of our listeners, head on over to embird.com and check out this lovely post with just chock full of interesting stuff. Thanks again for listening. And if you liked this episode and have been a fan of the podcast, please drop into iTunes and give us a rating and a review. And just a reminder that all of our content that we talked about can be found on our website, embird.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next week.